the most important decision I made at the time, which I would recommend highly for anyone moving into this sphere today is to really understand the corporate culture of your organization, but also what the business model is like. Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. This is the show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, my guest is Margaret Johnson-Clark. She is a French-American Yale graduate with over two decades worth of experience within diversity, equity, inclusion, corporate social responsibility, philanthropy, branding, communications, and ESG. She was highly recommended after I'd had Stephanie Chabonnier on the podcast. I've been really excited to pin her down for a conversation today. Margaret spent more than half her career at L'Oreal in key senior leadership positions across the board within the foundation through to brand communications and now in the diversity, inclusion, and equity space. Personally, she's married to an American artist, she has three children, and she's been awarded the Chevalier de Lorda Nationale de Merite, which I hope does not um, showcase my French pronunciation skills in too much of a bad light here, but that actually means the National Order of Merit for those um, who are British speakers. Welcome to the show, Margaret. Thank you so much, Leila. Thank you very much. It's so wonderful to have you here today. And every conversation we have, I love how deep we end up going. Uh, last time we were talking very much about going beyond formative diversity commitments. The last couple of decades, I've really seen you and your organization start to make these um, brilliant, uh, brilliant commitments that not only sync with uh, the wider uh, world and aspirations that we're seeing in the market, but also driving up employee value proposition from a brand point of view. Um, before we get into that, tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to be where you are today, because you had this wonderfully rich and colourful career and personal background, which I think is really reflective of your personality. Well, thank you. Yes. So I um, I started off after... Um, studying English literature at Yale. I started off actually working uh, for a nonprofit here in France. So I came back to Paris and I got involved in uh, this, uh, this organization that had been launched with private and public sector businesses, small and big, but also local communities, um, NGOs, and, uh, and public um, and, 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 and state-run organizations. So it was a very interesting mix. And the idea was to really be able to create new um, opportunities for people who are young and old, regardless of their age, but who had been too often discriminated in the workplace to come back into the workplace or to actually come into the workplace for the first time. So we tackled, obviously, um, employment, but mainly uh, it was about being as, uh, as, uh, as creative as possible, but also as, as um, piloting different programs to work on not only raising awareness within the workplace of how to include people from different 
walks of life, but also mainly to be able to really focus on uh, tackling topics like racism in the workplace, sexism in the workplace. And, um, and uh, so all of this enabled me for over six years working with you know means that were not huge but also uh, very exciting in a field that was a lot of uh, innovation and i decided to join l'oreal in 2000 to really start uh, putting uh, applying what i had learned in a smaller environment to a bigger scale uh, when i joined l'oreal i joined the headquarters here in france uh, the idea was to um to do this but on the but 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 in parallel to also work on and get to understand how the business function and i think that that was probably the biggest uh, the most important decision i made at the time which i would recommend highly for anyone moving into this sphere today is to really understand the corporate culture of your organization but also what the business model is like this enabled me through the last few decades to work in parallel in communications and within brands, working on different product launches and and, 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 and important um, different in, in different in different domains. But it enabled me to really make a link with what we call diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also what we call corporate social responsibility. So bringing that and making the business case um, really, you know bring it to life, but also understand what consumers are expecting, which has changed radically, I would say, in the last few years since COVID in acceleration, I would say in the last three years, but also what our employees are expecting and what our candidates are expecting. So having that business approach and experience was really valuable. And so I could build on what I had done before and, um, and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, bring a contribute to a change, which, uh, which I, I, I tried to do with the team. Wow, that is a huge amount in such a short period of time. And I have a million questions. My first one is, is, is I'd love you to kind of talk to me about the intersection between brand business case and social good, because from everything that you're saying, there's this growing stakeholder need, which has been accelerated by the pandemic. So absolutely. So just maybe to start off, L'Oréal is a global company with over 87,000 people. It has over 36 global brands specialized in beauty. So the sole vocation is really about creating beauty. The goal of, of this company is to really offer each and every person around the world the best of beauty. That is for all skin and hair types, but also all genders, all identities, all cultures, all age. So that means that by definition, our raison d'être, our, 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 our sole mission is really developing formulas that, you know, that ensure quality, uh, safety, but also answer all the specific needs. It also means, you know, uh, celebrating diversity of beauty in our advertisement. We are the fourth largest advertisers in the world. But it also means working as we are moving in a more tech-driven um, society and with experiences in beauty, that means also eliminating biases in algorithms. It means also recruiting diverse teams 
and making sure that we will focus more and more on inclusive leadership and management. And maybe we'll come back to that later. And finally, it's about also making sure that what we believe in, that what we apply in our teams, we are, in our advertisement, in our products, we also make sure that we um, partner with responsible suppliers who share those commitments. So it's a really, it's a really a, a 360. The truth is, I, I actually really believe that DNI fuels the innovation, the inspiration, and the ambition that helps us create this, all of these beauty products, but also experiences and speak in, you know, and, 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 and that from that, we can also move on and take a stance on certain topics at, as advocates. So it's about our business, which is personal, but also how do we test and learn over the last few decades. This position I occupy today was actually created 20 years ago. So that's also a huge advantage is that I've had amazing people before me doing amazing things so we can build on and then tweak it and make it really, you know, resonate with local needs, but also current affairs and what's going on today. Fantastic. And as you say, this is a 360 piece. What you're describing here is this wonderful, virtuous cycle of evolution. Innovation has fueled a lot of growth, having come from some of the smaller kind of projects before you leapfrogged into um, this incredible career trajectory. It's like you've taken a lot of those early learnings, the innovation from more of a national scale and replicated that globally um, to really fuel business growth. And wonderful to hear that this is not just something that has been happening with the trends over the last couple of years. L'Oreal has carved out this role. And I remember you telling me about this um, before. This role has been carved out over two decades ago because this has really been at the heart and center of the brand because of the importance not only to the consumer, but also uh, to those within the organization. Tell me a little bit about how you've seen this evolution over these last couple of decades, because all of the work you've done has really been at that forefront, whether it be for, you know, kind of working with NGOs, policy making, dealing with local governments um, and the likes, then through to working with public affairs, the brand side and how you actually really replicate that on a global scale and do it structurally. Because, you know, 20 years is a significant period of time to really see that role and that function start to span out within what is, you know, with large organizations, it's always a, a complex environment and needs a lot of structure and process in place to make it successful. I think uh, DNI has really evolved, um, obviously, greatly in the past couple of decades. Why? Because it started off as a very Anglo-Saxon approach. So it was very common, or it was more common, in companies based in North America or in the UK, not so much worldwide. And so a lot of uh, global companies would have had headquarters on this topic in Anglo-Saxon countries, even in Australia, but not necessarily in continental Europe or in Asia or in Latin America or in Sub-Saharan Africa. I think, so the switch is that today, this has become a global concern. Being an inclusive company, a workplace that enables people to speak up, to disclose um, their disability, 
to disclose their sexual orientation, to disclose their gender, to disclose, um, you know, anything that, that, that matters to them as an employee for them to feel comfortable to be, you know, happy to come to the workplace, happy to contribute and to collaborate. That safe space has really today has become true, not everywhere, obviously, and we still have a lot of, 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 of progress to, 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 to make, but that, that whole discussion has evolved. It has evolved, why? Because, well, for many things. First of all, there's certain topics such as Me Too, such as Black Lives Matter, such as um, even mental health issues that really were part of the discussions in certain parts of the world. And since 2017, with an acceleration in 2020, we saw that those discussions really um, became global. They became global, not only in the workplace, but also from our consumers. So for instance, we noted that we were being challenged as well by our employees, our candidates, but also our, our, our consumers. And that's why in the last few years, our international brands like L'Oreal Paris, like Maybelline New York, like um, YSL Beauty, uh, just, to, just to name a few, took over certain causes that they strongly believed that was in sync with their sense of purpose as a brand. And so they spoke up about street harassment. They've spoken up about mental health issues. They've talked about domestic violence. And it's not just through philanthropy. On the contrary, it's about raising awareness. It's about training. It's about enabling uh, folks to speak up and to reach out to consumers in a completely different way. So I think that that's what's really unique and really wonderful to, to watch and be part of is how all of these topics regarding inclusion have been embedded in our approach, in our, in our also in, a, in the culture and the, in the country where we're operating. So it's tweaked being mindful and, 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 and of, of what is what the history and how it's understood because terms like diversity and inclusion were not necessarily understood everywhere. So it was about not necessarily changing the words but explaining it and raising awareness on what that meant to be inclusive. We added, um, the term equity recently because it seemed that it was lacking and it was very important in certain of our cultures where that may may have resonated more than than inclusion for instance so um so it's I think there's huge huge uh, you know um, progress that's been made I think um, I think the fact that we uh, also are learning and, and, and with social media able to communicate so 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 instantaneously between countries, uh, we've watched this with with our with our teams, but also with our consumers that you know people are reacting and are expecting us to stand up and to voice an opinion, which we wouldn't have done as a large organization a decade ago. In fact, we would have we would have thought it was quite you know not our role. So we today, as a French company with a global outreach, will not speak up on every terms regarding social injustice, but we will discuss it and talk about it at the top, but mainly locally within our our subsidiaries. So that's a huge um, that's a complete change of posture as a as a as as from our perspective.
And it's a super change of posture, especially when we as consumers and employees are looking towards progressive organizations on their stance uh, around these around these issues. I know that you've done some incredible things when it comes to promoting disclosure in the workplace and really kind of voicing opinion. Um, and that's working with NGOs, public policymakers, um, and you know, also sitting on the French Diversity Advisory Board for gender equality in the industrial sector, which I think is, is wonderful. What advice would you give to other businesses and leaders who uh, have perhaps shied away from being outspoken when it comes to certain social justice issues? So I think I think we actually have a duty, um, and that that's the way I see it, at least for me. So I, I would not, I can't really advise this, but I, I would share my my humble experience. In the field of, for instance, if we take domestic violence, when Me Too happened in 2027 globally, I mean, obviously it's been going on for many, many years, but when it became a global conversation, um, I was trying to figure out how L'Oreal could position what L'Oreal Group should 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 do in this in in this field. We had done a huge amount on whistleblowing, and we had a platform already for the past 10 years enabling our employees to um, to speak up and, and to voice uh, if they had been themselves a victim or had been a bystander. Um, we had uh, worked on women in the workplace by closing the gender pay gap, by enabling women to be not only getting the right opportunities, but mainly really encouraged to reach leadership positions. So today, in fact, most of our brands, over 60% of our brands are led by women globally. Over 57% of our strategic roles are being led by women as well. So we still have uh, room for improvement at our executive committee, where we only have 32% of women. But in all of the other positions, we've usually exceeded the 50%. Which is, which is this long-term commitment. So that we had done in terms of equity in terms of, and, and in terms of parity. What we had not done is talked about gender-based violence. And because many thought that that was something that had to be dealt in the private sphere and not, it wasn't the voice, a voice of a company should not be heard on these topics. So in 20. 17, and then we put it into place in 2018. I actually was very, I felt very strongly that we should actually, and that it was actually not only our role, but our duty to speak up because the workplace was the only place that survivors and victims could actually seek counsel, advice, help, um, but also time, money, uh, maybe access to uh, lodging or daycare. So this was suddenly something that we and never really considered speak. So we we put this into place with other companies. We built a coalition called One in Three Women with other large companies. And today we also have smaller companies that have joined this business coalition. And we work with organizations like ILO and really were part of becoming, well, we became very strong advocates in 2019 uh, the following year when ILO was voting for this convention 190 to put to promote uh, 
policies within our organizations, small and big businesses, for domestic on domestic violence, I should say. So this is something where we actually ended up leading the way by putting together, writing a policy, a framework, so that all of our subsidiaries could put it into place as of as soon as beginning of 2021. And today I see that throughout all of our subsidiaries, we have this policy that has been uh, adapted, translated, and uh, to, to legal and, and also in sync with local legal legislations. But what's interesting is that I think that this is something where we were not expected to voice an opinion, and we did so. And by doing it with others also, it was much stronger because we did, I think there's certain things where, well, the workplace has to voice an opinion. So, um, so yes, I think it's important, not necessarily on all topics, but definitely uh, the same with the pledge that we just uh, joined that was launched by the Publicis group uh, last week in Davos um, on working with cancer, enabling, you know, um, employees to speak up and disclose if they have cancer or another uh, illness, which they need to talk about so that the that their their workstation, their time can be adapted and uh, and it can be a really safe space for them to um, also to, to, to feel good about when coming back. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, so, so I think it's, there, there are many different topics where I think we do need to be bold and we need to stand up. And I think that was not necessarily the role of companies, you know, 20 years ago, we had many other roles, but not, not, not necessarily in link with inclusion. And I think today that has changed radically. I love the premise of together organizations and leaders being stronger because I think there is definitely that trepidation and still now to a certain extent one of the questions that I get asked probably most of all by leaders and those who are perhaps slightly lower on the maturity curve in terms of their journey is they'll say things like where is the line though between personal opinion and corporate communications which is something mm -hmm. I think as a brand specialist, someone like yourself who, who's worked in a number of these areas can navigate that quite carefully. But those in certain functional areas alone actually see this as kind of a big mountain to climb. But, you know, Leila, we, we also we learn by doing. So, for instance, when uh, George Floyd was murdered in the United States, a lot of our brands immediately wanted to voice and share an opinion on Instagram. And, 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 and we actually had to, to, to convey and to discuss this as a group with our different leaders, with different countries, including the U.S., and to see what was the right thing to do and what, what made sense vis-a-vis L'Oreal and vis-a-vis L'Oreal's long-term commitment on, uh, on these topics. But it might not, the, 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 the answer might not have necessarily been just putting, uh, you know, black square on Instagram or voicing it. We needed to be um, much deeper and much more um, thorough in our, in our answer. And that's why we, for instance, uh, really encouraged and developed a huge amount of trainings internally on topics like microaggressions, like racism, like sexism, because uh, we thought maybe we we were we our heart was in the right place, but we weren't necessarily doing enough. And it was definitely not by just putting an image or that that, that would do the job. So we actually backtracked certain things that had been done by certain 
of our peers. So it's we're always learning. Um, I think we need the, the, the answer is really being incredibly humble, making sure that we listen to our people, to our employees. We've spent a lot of time listening, um, and especially with COVID, and that was a key learning, is to pause and enable people to speak up, not judge them, not give them immediate answers, um, process it. And then over the, over the last few years, we've developed more and more um, you know, safe spaces for people to come together and discuss topics. So it's not necessarily affinity groups that, because that doesn't also resonate everywhere in the world, but it's about enabling people to, um, yeah, to voice an opinion. And, uh, and then we, it also enables us to then decide at a global level what we should stand up for and how we should do it to be really, uh, yeah, in sync with, with, with what, what our, our community is expecting of us. These are some superb tips. So what I'm hearing for those that are, are considering the question of where is opinion versus corporate communications, what you're saying is this is not just performative. We need to demonstrate that we have got a long-term commitment. So don't be worried about stepping back to actually think about the issue uh, that is out there in the world. Listen to people listening circles, not being worried about backtracking, ensuring that there is well-rounded training, development, consideration, and that you're very intentional and humble about this. Because at the end of the day, these are world events that we've never experienced. Pandemic. Absolutely. Um, yeah. With George Floyd, we never would have thought perhaps 10, 20 years ago that issues like this could have come to the fore. And so gathering, as you say, uh, employee opinion, understanding uh, what people Absolutely. want is really the first steps to deciding then how you push out that global kind of and, and also, if I may, I think also reverse mentoring has been a huge experience for us because we're in a company where mentoring is really part of our what we do. So we have buddy systems, we have coaches, we have mentors internally. That's been part of our culture for literally a century. So, so it wasn't necessarily called those terms, but it was always in the same vibe. Today, what I find very strong is when when it really goes both ways. So, um, you know, whether it's on digital transformation or just being more inclusive, because, um, you know, explaining the use of pronouns uh, to a leader who might come from a completely different, uh, not from an Anglo-Saxon background, might not be aware of, of what that entails, what that means, what that and, and how to respect that. So reverse mentoring on all of our topics is absolutely crucial as well. And I think it can be done very, um, very naturally by putting forward uh, great people and matching them together. And we've seen really terrific outcome of those, those uh, reverse mentoring uh, system, uh, mentoring. Yeah, I think that that's something that, that would be another you know, tip for those who would like to try it in their own organization, regardless of the size of your organization, by the way, this is could be for a small, you know, organization or a large one like ours. You struck on one of my favorite subjects that I'm sure you and I could easily do another whole podcast about, and that is reverse mentoring, mentoring, learning and development and outcomes focused training and development. 
Um, if I may just ask one, one last question before heading into the lightning round. Uh, you touched on employee resource groups there, and what we're noticing is there's a, a real kind of bludgeoning trend for in, in employee resource groups, especially in line with uh, employee voice uh, on the rise. Um, talk to us briefly about some of the ERGs and, and the importance of those when it comes to communication. So it's a very interesting question, Leila, because it really differs from country to country. They came, so they started off, we had actually two experiences. We had one in the United States that immediately um, duplicated in the UK and Australia, uh, which we call L'Oreal think tanks. They're very in link with the business, but they're by affinity. Um, and it is really how to bridge a gap or how to voice an opinion from the LGBTQI plus community or the women of color community or the women in tech community. I say women because we do have 69% of women in our workforce, um, actually 68 in 2022. And, 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 and it's it's something that that has really worked out beautifully with a, an executive leader and, um, and with very kind of tangible output outcomes of this, uh, of, of these working sessions. In France, about 15 years ago, the same thing actually before it, it started, and it is, um, it's a model which is uh, quite different. It is not by affinity necessarily. It is a group of volunteers of, of employees who come together in, um, by building, by campuses. So, um, so there's something very kind of grassroots about it, and it's all functions, and it's all topics related to DNI. So it's very interesting because it's much more intersectional. So people come together with a wish to contribute, to bring their, to share their opinion, but to also contribute to the thinking and the piloting of different programs. And they come together, so they might work on uh, disability, but also on ethnicity, but also on gender. And so it is not, so they, so one person can be part of several discussions. And this model has proved to be quite adaptable and maybe a bit more international. That is in certain parts of the world, like the Middle East or Southeast Asia, or even Northern Asia, a bit more adaptable. So we are, we are, we're testing both models to be completely honest. We still are testing both models. And um, what we do noticed, what we have noticed, excuse me, is that since COVID, when our employees were volunteering outside of the organization, that stopped because of sanitary constraints. Since then, some have picked that up again, but many have decided and have preferred to get involved and volunteer internally within. So that's why our model that was that was based on two different um, agenda, I mean, approaches uh, today is being rethought because we have more and more volunteers. Uh, so, so, so we have these two approaches, I would say a more Anglo-Saxon and maybe a more European approach, um, both really work. And I think there is not one solution, but you know, again, the local, applying something global to a local um, country, taking into account cultures, history is so important. It's exactly like the topic of ethnicity. In some places we talk about race, in some places we talk about multicultural. It is, we have to be always very mindful of what is, um, what resonates and what is possible 
to vis-a-vis uh, -vis legal systems and vis-a-vis -vis ways of, 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 uh, of thinking and of, of teaching. So these are things that we really need to adapt um, to, 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 to our people, you know, in, in every part of the world where we operate. So, um, so yes, ERGs are growing, are definitely part of a trend as we get more and more volunteers, but there's not one answer. There are many different opportunities and, 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 uh, and, and, and of ways of doing it. So I hope I answered your question. Absolutely spot on, Marco, as ever. And you're absolutely right. There are growing trends. Uh, and also globally, employee volunteerism is, is on the up. And um, when I say you answered the, the question very well, I absolutely mean it because you touched on brand, employee, voice, um, how we come together. But ultimately, there is no one cookie cutter model that fits all. This is about looking at something that we think works and then the adaptability of it being then related to uh, local culture, to country level, what does that look like globally? And as you keep referring to, there is very much this Anglo-Saxonized view of things. And so how do we ensure that we aren't just presuming uh, other areas or regions view things through that same lens? And you know, finally, um, you talk a lot about language, and I think that is absolutely the heartland of, yeah. of everything surrounding communication. Uh, it really, it really is. And the best practitioners that I know really understand the nuances of local culture, of language. And it's such a relevant point. Yeah. I'd love to ask one final lightning round question, if I may. Mm -hmm. and, and that is, I wonder if you could go back in time and speak to the much younger Margaret Johnson Clark, or indeed someone who's embarking on their career is listening to this podcast thinking, oh my goodness, work with NGOs, work with great global brands, um, brand proposition meets uh, working uh, in corporate communications and DNI. What advice would you give to your younger self or someone who is on this journey and at the very start? I think, um... I think that's a great question. What advice would I? I think I think being authentic, being um, being authentic, and if um, and and finding one's voice to be able to speak up on certain important matters. I know that when I went to college, I wanted to join the Peace Corps, so I always wanted to do something vis-a-vis -vis others. I ended up not joining the Peace Corps and joining a, a much smaller local NGO. And I have no regret in that, but I guess the point is really what makes the most sense. There's something that has to be very grassroots to be able to, uh, from an operational standpoint, to see what you're doing. It can't stay too conceptual, but that's for me. And then you can get a bigger picture and you can also uh, share that vision at a later date. But starting off, I think it's very important to have a very hands-on experience. I think it's important to, as I said, be authentic, listen, spend a lot of time listening and analyzing, not being too quick and jumping to conclusions, or because we all have unconscious biases, we all have a massive amount of stereotypes whether we like it or not. So acknowledging that. So by putting that aside and just observing, 
I think things have changed. Uh, things are moving so fast in this field that um, it's important at some stage to also be able to um, to speak up and to know when it's the right thing to do. So it's you know learning by doing kind of thing also. Uh, so um, so yes, I think that that would be my advice. That's great advice, Margaret, and it's just such a, a lovely way to end what has been a brilliant conversation and a fantastic podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. You know, I've been waiting to have you on the podcast for some while. Um, for those that uh, would like to listen again or, or are keen to see the show notes, don't worry, they'll be uh, all in the notes at the end of today's show. I've learned a huge amount. I know that everyone who is listening will have, but we've really taken the discussion around corporate philanthropy the last couple of decades in terms of trends, taking that to another level, um, and also explored uh, that wonderful intersection between uh, what global brands ought to be doing and how we also regionalize, localize uh, that at the grassroots level. My name is Layla McKenzie. You've been listening to the Diverse and Inclusive Leaders podcast show with Margaret Johnson-Clark of L'Oreal. If you'd like to subscribe, please make sure you visit us at www.dalglobal.org forward slash podcast, or you can download and subscribe in your favorite podcast app, Apple, Spotify, uh, or any other uh, channel that you wish. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you again very soon. Music.